Hi, I'm Victor Milligan, your host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And by my side again is the most wonderful Carrie Johnson. <laughs> uh, welcome back, Carrie. Thank you, Victor. And today we're joined by product designer, technologist, and yes, inventor of the hashtag, Chris Messina, to give us a preview of the up- upcoming keynote at Forrester's CX San Francisco Forum on Relationship Design. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. So, Chris, let's start out with what is relationship design? Yeah, you know, like the origins of this idea really stem from um, some posts that I wrote uh, in early 2016 on conversational commerce. And in in this post that I wrote in January of that year, right as I was joining Uber um, to lead developer experience, you know, I'd been seeing this shift um, where brands and companies and, and, and mostly like, you know, tech folks were starting to realize that SMS would be a really good channel to connect with their customers. And um, this seemed, you know, to be pretty important and pretty interesting to me, um, given all the, the work that I've done in, in the world of social media um, and, you know, seeing how, how brands and companies are trying to connect with people and how people are connecting through technology to each other. And so if you imagine that companies and brands start to show up in these contexts where previously only your friends and family um, had, had been in terms of a conversation space, you know, how do you, how do you think about that? How do you approach that? So I wrote this post on, on conversational commerce, and um, it seemed to, I mean, it went viral and, and sort of caught a lot of people's attention. And I think the reason was because we're like, oh my God, like this is a, a channel, yes, that's starting to become available to us to create these one-on-one interactions. And um, as a result, or perhaps independent, or I'm not sure exactly the, the, the full causal relationship and all this stuff, but... Um, you know, a bunch of bot platforms and uh, conversational platforms launched immediately, like following that. But what I noticed over time was just that, you know, I think a lot of people took the wrong message away from what I was trying to say about conversation, um, which would lead to commerce. And so that led me to sort of think more broadly about the types of activities and behaviors of, uh, of a conversational brand that ultimately can produce commerce through conversation. And that's kind of the foundation of the, kind of the idea of, of, of relationship design. So one piece of the puzzle is the, the the change in marketing as a function. So marketing from direct marketing to email and to whatever is next is sort of this insatiable hunger for scale, which is I do I do one thing and it's applied to many people, and I sort of optimize from a conversion rate standpoint. And you know we've had a number of this conversations within Forrester that says you know ultimately the goal is to have that one-to-one conversation that's intimate, knowledgeable about the participants in the conversation, but that's almost antithetical to the search for scale. How do you see that in the relationship design and importantly in the early instantiations of bots, which were more about sort of making something more efficient? Yeah, and you know, I think like if you take a historical view on innovation and technology, you can kind of I wouldn't say pinpoint, but sort of get a broad sense for where we are in the evolution of these technologies. So if um, you kind of think about media and the way in which we've industrialized communication, in other words, to have one message spread over, you know, many, many audiences over and over and over again um, without very, without lots of variation, what industrialization has allowed us to do with products, you know, from shoes to cars and so on, is to, to build products that are uniquely tailored to the individual. Now, uh, there's not necessarily a lot of conversational back and forth in that customization process. It's still pretty much like we have an industrial process, and you can sort of like, you know, change the colors here and kind of like make these little tweaks there. There's not a um, a negotiated 
meaning that comes through that where someone says, well, well how would you like to feel? And then the, the, the brand that sort of knows their product best then says, well, here are the things that you could actually change about this to get that feeling. Um, and so I guess when I think about bots and I think about, you know, this, this desire to have mass communications cheaply, um, you know, spread across a broad audience, that's just kind of like, you know, general like raising awareness. Um, and that's fine, but that's just completely insufficient in a world where um, the means of communication, which previously were mostly dominated by, you know, brands and businesses or at least commercial entities, are now being dominated by individuals and people and your friends. So now brands are in a space where they have to compete with your friends, and your friends are going to be infinitely more interesting um, than a brand might be um, just by virtue of, of the, the social nature of humans. I certainly understand the ambition but what I struggle with is personalization is for many kind of like motherhood and apple pie. Everyone agrees that the principle is right. The outcome is great, highly preferred. But when you get to the mechanics and the economic implications, it gets to be the that might be a bridge too far this fast because the best I can do is give you options to which you choose from, which is a form of options, but not a form of personalization. It's just called that because it sounds cool. How are brands really marching in this direction, recognizing that for most brands, not their starting place? Yeah, I mean, I think and this is actually an important point, um, perhaps with the types of companies or brands that like, I've worked with or talked to relative to uh, who I imagine might be your audience. Um, and that isn't to say that they don't share similar interests, but the starting point is actually very, very critical and important. So if you're talking about, um, you know, change at a large enterprise that's been around for a long time and has a certain way of doing things. Um, I, I frankly, personally, just don't have a lot of experience with that, so I wouldn't you know, presume to sort of come off as, a, as an expert. What I'm more interested in personally is a new type of brand you know, that may emerge in this moment that does this stuff naturally or better or sort of starts from a conversational foundation where they not only take for granted the importance of the individuals that are in their I don't even think I would call it an audience, like in their user base or in their constituents, um, and how they interact with them and how they support them and how they look for opportunities to connect. So it's, it's, a, it's an entirely, it's like a generational disposition. It's like either you are going to be a conversational brand because you started that way, and almost the conversational aspect is redundant because it's taken for granted um, versus something that you're trying on and you're you know concerned about and you already have scale. So... I think we're talking about foundational things, and the question then is, and I would put this back to you, and I'm curious how, how you guys think about it, you know, what is it that brands can do to sort of start to reconceptualize themselves um, as something different than what they've been for a long time and where they found success previously? I think one of the things that struck me when I was reading your post about relationship design when it comes to that question was that the examples that you use, like Stitch Fix as an example, right, um, created a new story that very much fit what women in this case at first, right, needed, um, which is why they're able to become, I guess, let's use a sort of an open source brand, right, to use your term there. Whereas traditional companies often started with a, frankly, a bit of a, maybe a myth or fiction about what the customer needed. And, and by your argument, it actually means that they're not able to shift unless they completely tear down their old business because they weren't necessarily built on the same premise and they've been trying to market something that they have to customers versus listening, you know, from the get-go. So that makes me particularly concerned. Just jumping in, I mean, the way I look at that intersection is that 
a lot of businesses were premised on the concept of control. And when the customer is empowered and makes decisions, I lose a level of control. Yep. The democratization of brands is an example of that's scary for most brands. For some brands, they love it because what that, can, what that is is interplay. It's, it's, it's an engagement and a conversation with the brand. Where I think it comes to collisions is maybe with the intelligent agents, where if this conversational layer is the highly preferred layer, and if that now disintermediates the brand from the customer because the customer prefers that layer to be there, more and more brands that have sought control will fundamentally lose control because they'll lose access because this conversational layer is just highly preferred at the human level. I mean, that's how I see these collisions with the brands. One, one way to look at the collisions with the brands happen. Right. And we've had this debate in other podcasts where the, something you said is critical, which is if this is the preferred way for customers to interact with brands. I think that's more of an open question still than a defined end state. It makes intuitive sense for certain types of brands, but other brands have been built on, frankly, the entire conversation is around efficiency. Like you, you serve my needs incredibly well because it's fast and I'm busy. How engaged do they want to be, right? Yeah, I would totally support that point too. Like my point about conversational software, conversational brands, conversational design, blah, 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 talking, talking, talking. Like, uh, you know, ironically, I'm actually more of an ambivert, you know, trending towards introvert. So, you know, conversations can be pretty exhausting. So it's not that I'm suggesting that all brands suddenly want to talk to you 24-7. That's actually really inefficient and people don't have enough time or attention uh, to deal with that. However, uh, the opportunity to engage with people on a deeper, more resonant level in these, I think, really important moments where someone has a specific need or desire or is looking for clarification or just support. I, I think that um, like the human experience is, is pretty you know, variable and, and from time to time pretty tough and, and pretty stressful. And this is where the one many undifferentiated um, kind of tone-deaf style of communication, you know, advertising and some of that have been uh, out there for, for quite a while, you know, was the most, uh, I guess, economical way of, of reaching scale. But ultimately now, I think in a world where so much media is being personalized between individuals, it becomes alienating and isolating. And so if I talk to a brand and it forgets who I am, even though I just, you know, shopped on that website or I sent them a message via Twitter um, and they, they, they don't know that I, you know, they have this like, kind of like amnesia. It just is annoying to me. You know, it's like, I know you. I see you as a brand. I see that you're out there. Um, what are the ways in which you're meeting my needs and coming to me? Um, and so it's absolutely the case that there's going to be a, a, a broad spectrum of brands that choose to or choose not to become more conversational or become specifically conversational in different ways. And some of it comes down to just customer service mm -hmm. and the ways in which customer service people are enabled to take proactive measures on behalf of the brands. And you see, I mean, airlines, I think, are actually an interesting case because they have so much constant back and forth with their customers, and it's a very stressful you know, situation, and they deal with a large number of people. Um, and you see when brands or, or airlines like get it wrong, and they get it really wrong. And then in other cases, there are stories where you know, airline personnel are empowered to actually you know, take care of problems and to do the right thing and to sort of use their judgment. And, and if you've hired well, and if you train people well to sort of know that they're there to serve individuals and to build relationships and not just sort of, um, you know, cut costs or, or, you know, sort of marginalize the, the customer, um, then, then oftentimes there are great stories that result from that. 
So yeah, I think to me, it's ultimately a forecasting question, which is when we did work in our predictions, we estimated, I'm going off memory, something like there's $24 billion of commerce spend that will hide behind the intelligent agents, Google Home, Alexa, and the brands, they might see it in their numbers, but they, they actually weren't part of that dialogue. And it's not that all consumers are doing this or all consumers are doing that, is are there enough of them and is there enough economic pressure that for me to have a controlled brand, a controlled narrative, is simply not no longer economically advantageous to me? Or I have presupposed that I'm going to be the best wholesaler, the best utility ever, and my whole business is going to go to a efficiency game. And I think you're actually seeing that now in some cases in auto insurance, where as you look towards the future, and let's just let's just stipulate that usage-based insurance or some form of it will emerge, and the you'll get insurance by the drink, the insurer may not want to participate in that from a retail perspective, but maybe the carrier of choice underneath it, underneath Amazon or underneath Uber or underneath whoever the car maker is that's in that space. So I do think there's some economic decisions that this is going to force as to where where and how do I wish to make the money. Well, I think in this scenario too, what you're, I think what you're saying is it will be extraordinarily expensive and difficult to build this sort of conversational brand. So it made you be just as economically feasible to be, be a provider and do that really well and have be a choice that is made through other platforms. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, I think when Chris, you brought up earlier, which is some brands will see, see saying a conversational brand is redundant to who they are. They, would, they want to understand why you're saying conversational brand. That's who I am. They just, that's just a redundant speak. Yeah. To existing brands, that is just a foreign beast. We've had Sam Stern on here that says some large culture runs can take five years. This is part of that puzzle. So how much do people really want to take this on and how confident are they they'll get to the other side? And how long will that take? I mean, I think there's some choices to be made. If, if people believe that conversational interfaces of this nature are going to be important enough that it's an economic question at that point. Yeah, I hadn't actually hadn't thought of things that way. Maybe you've said it before, where there could be a conscious choice not to. And that's right. okay. Like right now we look at data and say X percent of companies are not doing these things. Right. And that's bad. Maybe it's not bad. Maybe they're making a different choice. Yeah, I mean, I think there's some extremely successful companies that will sit below that interface and they're going to offer, they'll be digitally nimble, they'll be thoughtful, efficient, stuff like that. They'll still do customer care, but they'll think of it differently. And they'll throw off a lot of cash. I was going to say, they'll throw off a lot of cash. Great. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would would add to that, like, um, and I think this is one of the things that voice computing in particular brings up which is the question as to how much do you want to actually interact with your customer? I mean, if, if historically you've been in broadcast mode and you rely on, you know, the one-to-many model, you know, that's, that's sort of like a pulse. You know, it's like you're, you're not dead, um, but you're not very interactive. But I completely agree that actually being interactive, being responsive, being synchronous in conversation with your customers is incredibly expensive, just from sort of like a caloric, you know, perspective, like, you know, you have to pay attention and you have to really listen and you have to hear and you have to be uh, able to maintain context and context over time and over for mediums. And customers will say all sorts of things that don't jive well with the talking points. So they're sort of, they're sort of like, why is the customer off script? Well, and so actually just that question or that statement, I think 
underlies the whole disconnect, which is that a conversational brand would never say that the customer is off script because there is no script. The whole point is to be there and to listen and to recognize that the value of the attention that the customer is paying you now is extraordinarily high relative to what it used to be when it was uh, essentially a a commodity. And now there are so many things that are whittling away at an individual's ability to focus for any period of time that you have to be engaging and you have to sort of not just and, and like capturing attention makes it seem like it's an animal, you know, that's wild. Yes, it is. That's the whole point, right? That's, that's human experience. So then the question is, how do you adjust yourself to, to try to be more conducive to allowing those things to happen, to creating more space for that ambiguity um, and then to, to serve people when, when, you know, they need it? Yeah, I mean, the, the way that I, I think about it is, is one of my dreams is to invent an acronym. BSOP, peace up. And I've been so many conversations with clients that say, if I only had a blank sheet of paper. Yeah. And I think that's, to me, that's the, that's the cord that connects these two pieces together because I think what we're learning from startups, from innovation teams that are separate from core is they're, they're sort of untethered to whatever has worked in the past and they're untethered to the rules. And so they invent things that at first blush seem wacky. And it may not be that that idea in its, in its full form ever really goes anywhere, but there's something about it. So we're used to now, whether that's Apple or Samsung, whoever it is, that every year there's a major innovation on, in the phone. And if there isn't, there's this outcry of there's just no innovation. It's late. Something has gone wrong. But if you look at other industries, industries don't think of this idea of a refreshment of the relationship or refreshment of those cycles. And yet, as human beings, we're now conditioned to believe that every year there's going to be this major advances and new ways of making my life better. So you do kind of see there's a there's a lineup here where where firms can learn about these different pieces, and that might be what's at play here. Yeah, and again, like I'm, I think a big piece of the relationship design uh, concept for me is about longevity and mutuality. Like I think that that in this age of of, of, of just, you know, increasing dist- distraction um, where, you know, we are tethered to our devices and our devices are constantly sort of notifying us of things that are happening with our friends. Brands do have to behave in a way that makes them more relatable and more interesting and more compelling, and yet also not just crass and commercial and always wanting to extract value from us. Like, uh, you know, you have mooch friends like that that, you know, are always asking to, like, borrow money or, you know, borrow the car or, like, whatever it is, and, like, eventually they don't become friends anymore. And so I think that that's the risk to certain types of brands who care about, you know, their customers and care about having a long-term relationship with them. And not all brands do. They, you know, are looking for the transaction, and that's fine. Um, but I think maybe it's, it's more to the point of, you know, there's been a lot of conversation about, you know, what brands stand for and what their values are and what their principles are and how they behave. And brands that don't think very hard about that and are mostly in the business of just, you know, sort of, you know, transacting commerce are then experiences as such. And their, their customers, you know, could give two shits about them. Like, you know, you'll see the, the sort of bad reviews and you'll see, you know, kind of like poor customer service. And, and yet if they are only optimizing on the lowest possible cost and they end up getting a lot of business because people are cheap, you know, let's face it, um, then that actually works out for them, right? So if you aspire to have a higher quality experience, if, you know, like Apple is a jewelry company that, you know, happens to make internet connected, uh, you know, sort of wearables, um, that is a premium experience that people are paying more for, 
and the, the, the phone and the device in your pocket is much more re- representative of your, your wealth than the car in the garage because you have it with you always and people will see it. I think if other brands aspire to give people superpowers or some sense of self or some extension of self, then the quality of that interaction that they have and the way that they feel about the brand is way more important than it's been, I think, in recent years. And especially, again, in the world um, of voice commerce, where you're having a conversation or some sort of, I mean, right now it's not very conversational, but it will become more conversational over time. You're talking to Alexa or the Google Assistant, and you're looking for a quality interaction or experience. Um, you know, you're going to remember the brands that I think gave you a positive feeling relative to the ones that obviously didn't or just were unremarkable. Yeah. So I think I think I, we can stipulate that the technologies are there or going to become there. The question is, does the culture catch up? Does the talent catch up? And does the operations at the front end catch up to the technology? Or is the technology going to be in service of scale? I mean, I think to me, that sort of is the equation here. So, Chris, when you're engaging, I know, you know, you, you, there's a digitally native firms, they start thinking differently. But what is the short list of things that you're coaching them on or they come to conclusions on that to you are illuminating to brands that actually want to give this a whirl. They legitimately want to understand how do I do this, even even though they already have achieved a level of scale. Sure. I mean, I think you know, one of the things that I tend to do, you know, in my own personal practice, and I mean, this is frankly how the hashtag you know came about as well. You know, it's just to look at the existing behaviors and how people are trying to get things done or trying to communicate to you, um, and and to, to look at like what's really going on. Um, you know, so there, you know, could be on social media, it could be on Twitter, which, you know, obviously gives you like sort of a public, you know, context for things. You can look into or open up like your DMs um, and just kind of see the types of things that people are asking or communicating to you. I think one of the things that, that, that I've found and I've heard um, through both working with and sort of attending events in the, the conversational design space and the voice design space, you know, is that a lot of companies and brands, you know, take the sort of phone tree approach where they have a sense for what their customers need. You know, they know better than their customers, so they map out, you know, the space of different intents or things like that that people, you know, are likely to want to do based on how they themselves think of their products or the way that they've organized their company. And then they deploy that and they sort of, you know, maybe like do some tests, uh, you know, to see if they're sort of solving their customers' problems. But um, one of the things that uh, I've talked to Shane Mack from Assist about, you know, is the idea of um, being much better at listening for errors or um, misses. You know, where have you had a conversation or an opening with a customer, and they said something totally wacky? Again, they went off script. Well, what can you do to then ingest and consume that that information, that that interesting data point, and then make a decision about whether or not that that question or that thing off script actually has a seed or a nugget of insight or wisdom or of an experience that someone has uh, you know captured or expressed that then should turn into um, you know uh, I guess a a supported route or a supported intent that you otherwise weren't, um, you know, meeting. Yeah, I mean, the way that I the way that I hear that is that brands have formed a type of relationship with a customer, meaning they have conditioned the customer to expect a certain brand experience. And so, if I think of swimming lanes and swimming pools, that they they have the customer in a swim lane, and the customer puts the brand in a swim lane, and the brand may may extend the swimming lanes into a pool, but it's still the same. They, I, I have conditioned them to think of me a certain way. If I want to break that conditioning, I have to go out of that pool and bring them to a fundamentally different experience, which is why you see you know, brands create new brands if they're going to do something fundamentally different just to recreate the conversation from scratch. You've also seen 
brands acquire some of the conversational brands, right? Yep. Like a Gillette and Dollar Shave Club and things like fundamentally saying, we didn't see this. Yep. That's a great idea. And it's a completely way of flipping our relationship with the customer. Um, so let's just acquire it. Now, we could have a whole other probably podcast about that often being the way that neat new brands go to places they go to die. But uh, yep. certainly they're trying, right? The big brands are trying in that way. I think this is a really interesting point because, you know, like I've, uh, I've, I've patronized a few of these, um, you know, meal subscription services in the past. You know, I was with Blue Apron for a while and now I'm using Sunbasket. And, you know, in the early days of those companies, um, you know, when I was, I don't know what era or, you know, generation of customer I was, but, you know, their customer service was amazing. And it's like, you know, there was just like a bruised, you know, like Apple or something like they would sort of like send me a whole new thing or give me $25 credit. Like it was great. Um, you know, and over time, I've noticed that like the quality and the complexity and the sophistication of some of their um, the, the kits themselves have sort of like gone down, and it seems to be sort of a product of scale. And so, you do have to ask this question: um, whether or not that kind of quality and sophistication can actually scale, and whether it should, and whether or not there's just sort of like you know there should be more tiers um, in the economy of different levels where you can sort of choose you know where to buy. Like I think it'll be interesting to see what happens to Dollar Shave Club. Um, you know, or, or or even like Blue Ball Coffee, for example, which was uh, acquired by um, was it a big water company. Um, anyways, whatever it was, you know, like if they can maintain their independence, their autonomy, and sort of um, maintain something more of like a quality bespoke experience while they're sort of you know continue to scale. Yeah, the insipid factor here to me is margin, which is in a firm invents and they have cash. It's simply a spend. And then they get into a growth mode and they're measuring revenue. And you can still kind of do that sort of ignoring cost. And then the margin thing comes to call in. And I think the question is, how do how does one exploit technology or build ecosystems so you're not bearing the full board of it and still do what you're saying, Chris, but still recognizing that for firms at a certain scale, whether they're private or public, still are slave to margin. They're slave to the uh, how much cash they can throw. That's one of the questions that we have now, like, uh, Nestle is the one that acquired um, Blue Bottle, so you can imagine like how you know those different cultures are coming together. Um, I, I, I suppose you know maybe it's because I'm in Silicon Valley and you know like we have ridiculous stocks here. Um, but uh, there's this. I would say it's not a very you know uh, beneficial uh, agreement between companies and consumers. And essentially, the company is like, you know, we're going to produce a bunch of, you know, widgets and things at scale efficiently, and we're going to get our costs down, and then we're going to please sort of like this public market that really doesn't, you know, care that much about the, the consumer as long as the consumer continues to, continues to buy. And, you know, we will sort of extract value from that exchange uh, in increasing amounts over time, and that's the game that, that's been set up, uh, you know, to be played. And my question and my thought and, you know, my, my aspiration perhaps uh, again, naively, and I, I have to ho- hold on to my naivete because that's the only you know hope that I might have, um, is that there might be a different set of companies or brands that exist in the future that has a different idea uh, about the relationship between these large entities um, and and individuals, uh, and it could be mediated, mediated through artificial intelligence or through machine learning or through these you know mass personalization machines or through inverting the paradigm of the internet where you know, the individual uh, citizen of the Internet actually has a great deal of personalization information about or in them or sort of stored for them or available to them such that a conversational brand is very quickly able to adapt themselves to meet the needs of that consumer. And that is not the way things are today because we're living in this interesting transitional moment where there's a lot of confusion about privacy and secrecy. 
there's a lot of concern, rightly so, about you know hacks and access to data. Um, but instead, if we think about it from a different perspective, the types of experiences that individuals could have that are facilitated by you know organizations and brands uh, could be fairly transcendent and interesting and worthwhile and valuable, and not just based on commerce. Um, but we're so early in that process. But we're just starting to see, I think, the shoots of companies that are coming up that sort of have that different idea. Um, and, and certainly that seems very interesting from, uh, I guess, an artistic or expressionistic perspective and where this goes next. So, Chris, you're going to be the keynote at our, our CX San Francisco event coming up. What is the big idea that you're leaving the audience with? Because you're going to have folks there from some of these traditional brands, some of them from emerging companies that will have a little bit more financial freedom, if you will. But what's the big idea that you're leaving them with? Well, you know, I think, I mean, obviously this conversation has been extremely, like, high level. And so one of the, the, the challenges I think that I have for myself and, and a lot of people in this space, you know, have is to make this stuff more, you know, down to earth and more concrete and more realistic based on examples in the wild. Um, so I know, like, that's something that I have to personally work on. Um, but I think the challenge for, you know, the room is to sort of maybe, you know, start with where I just ended, which is to think differently about what it is that said. Uh, the business of the company is, um, and to orient itself differently around the consumer and around building relationships, um, you know, that last and grow and are, are mutual. Chris, this has been an absolutely fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for your time, and I look forward to seeing you at, in San Francisco. Awesome. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. If you like what you heard today, join Chris and more in the 900 CX Tech and Marketing Thought Leaders at Forrester's upcoming CX San Francisco Forum. For more information and to reserve your seat, visit 4.com slash CXSF. That's F-O-R-R dot C-O-M slash CXSF. Thank you for listening and I hope to see you there.